0: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I am your co-host, Alexis McDowell. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use disorders, resources to assist individuals with a substance use disorder, and or their families and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services we are bringing you another full episode of conversations with some of our organizational stakeholders this month we get to hear from barbara of oklahoma cart association and Sumitra of soar stay tuned for stories from the field and without further ado let's get talking starting with barbara <music>
1: Okay, so OCARTA is a recovery community organization here in Oklahoma City. We really do try to help anyone that we can in any type of recovery. We're all about different pathways to recovery. What works for you may not work for someone else, and we understand that. Uh, We're the only peer-led recovery organization in Oklahoma. And for anyone that might not understand what that means, it just means that when someone walks into OCARTA for any reason, they're going to be connected with someone who has been through what they're going through. We don't do any clinical services here. We have a ton of ton of resources. And so if someone were to need counseling, you know, or medication or anything like that, we have a lot of different places that we can send them to. And, you know, we, we try to kind of meet them where they're at and find a way to get their basic needs met first, because having been in recovery ourselves, we understand that if you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight, your focus isn't going to be on how am I not going to take my next drink or how am I not going to, you know, use again. And so, so we do provide A lot of resources in the way of hygiene products, clothes, shoes, groceries, if we have those donations available, and things like that. In addition, we have transitional living. We offer housing for men, women, and women with children. We're very connected in the community. We do a lot of outreach work. We're partnered with DBSA. Depression Bipolar Support Alliance, and we offer those groups here as well. We are pretty involved with a lot of the treatment centers that are in the state, and we even do transports for DOC. So if someone is going through community sentencing and has the option to go to treatment rather than spend time in jail, we're going to go pick them up where they're at, and we're going to take them to any treatment facility in the state. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's really good work, and I'm absolutely thankful that I get to come in here and do this every day because it's definitely, it's a privilege. I love that. How'd you originally get started with Okarta? So I am in recovery myself from alcoholism and for my mental health. I was so, thank you, thank you. Yeah. And I was sober for about six months and hit what a lot of people will call a second bottom. I just was not stable mentally. And so I decided to reach out for help, got into therapy and got on medication. And someone that I got connected with in recovery was a peer recovery support specialist. And she talked about her job all the time and how it gave her something that no job had ever given her. And it sounded like something that I wanted to do, but I just didn't think that I'd ever be able to. So when I was probably about a year sober, I asked her how to get into it. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm just going to go for it, you know? And so she's good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And she's like, so just call Ocarta and you can take classes there and blah, blah, blah. And that's something I forgot to mention. We actually teach a peer recovery support specialist class here. We get them connected. Oh, awesome. Yeah. We get them connected with the Oklahoma department of mental health and substance abuse services where they do their training here their volunteer hours and then we get them connected to go to the state and do the training there and get certified. So, lots of success out of that. Because, you know, we want to offer them the opportunity to get that hands-on, not just, you know, sitting in class for a week and then you get certified and it's like, but what do I do now? You know. And so that's a big part of what we do as well. So anyway, going back, I'm sorry. Got a little off track there. No, you're good. So I called OCARDA and they were like, hey, come in for an interview. We'll see if you qualify for our RSS class. And it turns out that I did. So I took my classes. It was about the second weekend Ocarta closed because of the pandemic. This was back in February, March, March of 2020. And so I had to learn how to use Zoom. And it just all went full circle because I had to learn to use Zoom because I wanted to continue my class for PRSS. And then the clubhouse where I go to my AA meetings closed down. So I was able to set up some meetings online through Zoom, because I knew about it because of Okarda. And anyway, so I went through the training and everything, I got certified, and I was just looking for a job for about three months. And I just kept saying, I'll land where I belong. I didn't know if I believed it anymore. But one night, (laughs) you know, I just I got this text from the director here, and she said, Are you still looking for a job? And I went, I can work there. So I came in and and here I am. And that's been about a year and a half ago. Wow, that's so cool. I love how full circle that is. I'm curious because I feel like this happens for a lot of uh, centers and organizations that train folks. It seems like once they train the people, they keep the people. (laughs) Is that true? That is true for... Let's see, we have eight staff members, and I think that's true for at least half of us. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. Talk to me a little more, because I think for any recovery organization, it's vital to be able to offer all of those services like OCARTA does, to be well-connected within the community and other organizations, like all the treatment centers across the state of Oklahoma. That's huge, especially, I mean, Oklahoma is not the biggest state, but it's certainly vast enough and spread out enough. So talk to me a little bit more about that relationship building and what that's like. Okay. So I am not really connected with behind the scenes as far as that goes. I do know that when a new facility opens up, that isn't too far away. We try to go like our director will go and take a little tour and we will take groups there. Well, for example, a couple of weeks ago, our housing manager took all of the house managers, the female house managers, to a treatment facility here in the city that is for women and children. And all of our house managers spoke there and were able to tell their stories. And Mm. and so just kind of reaching out, letting them know, you know, that we have those resources available. And we just try to stay connected with usually the supervisor of the peer supporters in those facilities. So that we can, you know, when we might have something coming up, say an event or something like that, we always try to reach out and let them know. Mm -hmm. And we actually get a lot of referrals that way. That makes sense. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I was just curious. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, this is not to put you on the spot or anything. I'm just always curious. Um, so speaking of putting you on the spot and me asking you a question about a job that you don't necessarily do, tell me more about your role with Okarda. So I am the women's ambassador here at Okarda. That's a good title. I like that title. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am certified as a peer recovery support specialist. I'm also certified as a behavioral health wellness coach, and I am currently in training to become a personal medicine coach. Nice. So I am very, very fortunate that I work for an agency that allows all the room for growth. And, and what I get to do is I mentor women, one-on-one. I facilitate a toxic relationship support group, and that includes domestic violence support because that is in my past as well. I am a first responder, so I distribute Narcan and do trainings on how to use it and how to recognize the signs of an overdose. I coordinate all of our transports for DOC. I mean, I do a lot of little things. Yeah, <laughs> I do a lot of outreach, which is really a big deal for me. Because just for example, once a month, we do a thing that we call bowls of hope. And we go to the bus terminal downtown and we pass out food for free. We offer Narcan and we offer OCARTA services. And that's really close to my heart because I went through a period of time in my life where I had to depend on public transportation, which if you know anything about Oklahoma City, it is not very reliable. They're working on it, you know, and it's getting better, but it's just not that great. And so it's really a tough situation to be in if you have to use the bus system here. And so we need a lot of people there who really, really need services like Ocarta. You know, and people actually show up, they come in and they're like, hey, I met this lady at the bus terminal, you know, and I see that you help with clothes. Can I see what you have? You know, like can you help me out here? And or I need sober living. I mean people have moved into our housing because we met them at the bus station. What a great touch point. So, things like that are really cool. And that's just a little example, you know, stuff like that happens all the time with us, but just an example. Yeah. So, you wear many hats. What do you have a favorite? (laughs) (laughs) I, I. Is that I like guess. asking a mom which of their children is their favorite? <laughs> Emma, like, do I have to answer this? But uh, you know, so okay, I'm I'm just gonna say this. I don't dislike any part of my job. Wow, say so not a lot of people get to say that, right? I'm very fortunate. Yeah. My least favorite is the paperwork, but I don't dislike it because I know that the bills have to get paid. And in order to do that, we have to show where our money is going. And so I understand it's just part of the work. But if you ask me and I had to choose what my favorite part of my job is, I would have to say it's my one-on-one mentoring. I get to see these women come in and they just don't even know if if there's any hope and a couple of months later, it's like, look at you. Yeah. You know, you're, you're living on your own and you've got your kids back. You've been, you know, in recovery for six months now. I mean, you see these lights come on Mm -hmm. and it's just a really amazing because it helps me to remember, too, that I'm also not alone. Yeah. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So maybe this, you might have already touched on this, but if you had to describe a challenge that you face in your day-to-day work, tell me about that and how you navigate it. So one of the challenges that I deal with a lot is when I am mentoring women who want to get help for their mental health, maybe they're in recovery from substances, Mm -hmm. but they're dealing with depression Mm -hmm. and they don't have insurance. Mm. And we have resources for that, which is amazing. You know, it's Mm -hmm. so exciting. I like you see them light up and then they go, but I can't get an appointment for two months Mm-hmm. You know this pandemic has made it so hard for us to get the help that we need for things like that here mm-hmm. and And so that's definitely a challenge that I see a lot of our participants facing, but it's also not something that they haven't been able to overcome. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of turns into, well, I can't get in there for two months. Maybe we can meet more often. So I have someone to talk to in the meantime, you know, and it tends to work out most of the time. The, yeah, this pandemic's, f- and I don't mean to bring up COVID-19 because it seems like, yeah, we're all struggling through it in different ways, right? But as we continue to establish our new normal, whatever that looks like, I mean, it's very palpable how much it's affected just everyone and it's it's even hard for me now to even come up with like a succinct summary sentence because it has it's just been really hard on everyone in every industry for a variety of reasons it's been challenging but also exciting and inspiring to see how recovery organizations have adapted and kind of flex themselves to still meet the needs of the people they're interacting with. It's like, okay, this is some good work. We're still here. Yeah. 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 How much do you all reach outside of Oklahoma city? or Are you very focused on just the city? We are pretty focused on the city, but we do offer some of our services in Tulsa, which I don't know how familiar you are with Oklahoma, but it's a couple of hours away. At one point, we did have an office in Tulsa, but it didn't work out. And we still offer the groups, a lot of the groups that we were doing there, mostly virtually now. But... When it comes to like the RSS class, mm-hmm. anyone from all over the state can join through Zoom. And I think we currently have a couple of people from Lawton joining us, which is a couple hours in a different direction. Do you, if you can speak to this, I'm always curious when we start talking geography, What what's kind of the political landscape or... In your area, with regard to just recovery in general, what what are those conversations like? (laughs) So our founder, Donna Woods, is an amazing advocate. And she has actually pushed and been able to have some laws changed in the past. So it's better than it used to be. I can't speak to that 100% because I am just now starting to learn the political side of things from where we are, but I don't know. I'm still pretty optimistic about it. And, and that tells me that I don't know enough
0: (laughs) (laughs) from what I hear.
1: (laughs) That's fair. I, I, you know, I, I just think it's, I mean, a way to just, very generally talk about it is to say like it's better than it used to be. And I'm hopeful for change that's coming. <laughs> yeah. But We're going to cool. do what we can. Yeah. And I, I think it's so huge that your director is an advocate and is, has got their pulse, their finger on that pulse. It is in our name. OCARTA actually stands for. Oklahoma Citizen Advocates for Recovery Transformation Association. Thanks. I I should have asked you that up front. Yeah, I've just been saying OCARTA this whole time. Oh, no, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. It could have just been a word. (laughs) It's an acronym. (laughs) Pretty cool, huh? So if someone were to want to get connected with OCARTA, we are centrally located just off of I 44 in May, and we're on the service road. and if you just Google Okarta, you can find us pretty easily. In September, you know that is not just National Recovery Month, but they're just calling it Recovery Month now because recovery isn't just here, you know, it's world, worldwide. And so in September, the third September of the month, we do a really big deal where, We do a recovery walk at Scissor Tail Park, which is sort of like Oklahoma City's Central Park. It's it's huge. And we have all kinds of vendors, partners out there. We serve food. We have, you know, lots of activities. And then at one point, we walk over the Scissor Tail Bridge to symbolize, you know, Hey, we're here and we're in recovery and this is possible. And we're not bad people. As Donna always says, we're not bad people trying to be good. We're sick people who deserve to be well. And so we work really hard to show everyone that. And the big walk in September, the third weekend, the third Saturday, I believe it's the 17th, is when we show that the most. Very fun and important, not just fun unimportant (laughs) yes yes we do have a good time oh yeah you gotta have that that's important (laughs) well it really is you know we we actually do uh an event once a month here at ocarda you know we just and and everyone's invited everyone's welcome but we just want to show our participants that it's possible to have fun and recovery you know yeah well before we wrap up, one of, my, one of the questions I always ask is if the listeners today tuned in and all they took away from our conversation was one thing, what's that one thing you'd like them to take with you? Recovery is possible for anyone. And if you're questioning whether you're one of those people that it's possible for, just reach out because I promise it is possible. I love that, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for our conversation today. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for being here today and listening in. I'm here with Samitra. Would you like to tell us and me and the listeners a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everybody. And thank you again for inviting me on. I was listening to some of the other podcasts, and they are amazing. And just hearing about the other work that so many are doing and leading in this field is really, really amazing and inspiring. So I'm very, very excited to be on the podcast with you today. So my name is Dimitra Pokato. I work at the SAMHSA SOAR TA Center. And SOAR stands for SSI, SSDI Access, Breach, uh, Access, and Recovery. And basically, it's it's a SAMHSA-sponsored initiative to um, help individuals that are experiencing homelessness and that have severe mental health or physical health or substance use impairments be able to streamline the disability application process for them. And it's it's all about, you know, when we talk about and think about recovery supports and we, we talk about, when we think about what are the major barriers, you know, and we know recovery looks different, but when we really think about what are some of the major barriers oftentimes income is one of those barriers. And so, you know, SOAR is really kind of designed to be able to, to streamline that process and help get those approvals expedited for those that need it most. That was a very long-winded response to your question, but hopefully
1: it made sense. <laughs> no, I love it. It's, a, it's the perfect elevator pitch. I'm always working on mine. I don't have mine down yet. Sumitri, so, for those who don't know, can you talk a little bit about what SSI and SSDI stands for, what that means? Sure, absolutely, 100%.
2: So SSI and SSDI, they are two of a number of different disability programs that the Social Security Administration administers. And so SSI is a needs-based program. So if there's an individual who's experiencing severe mental health, physical health, and or co-occurring substance use disorder, and they are considered low need so falling under certain income and resource guidelines they would be eligible for this program and it what it provides is uh, an income for them right so typically if someone's approved for SSI or SSDI what they have demonstrated to the SSA office is that I'm a person that has a severe impairment that has severely impacted my ability to function more so be able to function in a or function appropriately in a work setting and be able to work and earn substantial you know, income, right? And so that program is offered for those that have demonstrated that severe impairment, that severe need, and it's a needs-based program. So it's, you know, that's what it's available for. SSDI, similarly, um, a person would have to indicate, you know, that severe impairment, but SSDI is a little bit different because that would be specifically for those that have worked a number of years, have paid into the system. You know, like when you look at your little paycheck and you look at all the deductions and it's like, what are all these deductions coming <laughs> out of my check, yeah. right? Well, the little category that says FICA, mm-hmm. right, that's uh, related to SSDI. So you as a worker, you've been paying into the system all the time that you've been working it have been taking out your check. And now <coughs> you're unfortunately maybe have experienced something that has rendered you in the category of disabled. So SSDI would be appropriate for someone like that.
1: Gotcha. And can you talk to me a little bit about kind of the structure? I mean, you obviously this is a national program, but I imagine it's kind of slated out through the states, but maybe I'm making that up. Talk to me a little bit about the structure. Yeah, absolutely. So those are two
2: um, federal programs. It is administered through the states, but it they are two federal programs. So in terms of the application processes, those are the same. I think what's really notable and what really kind of inspires me to continue doing this work every day. So if you look at the current statistics, right, of a person who's applying for SSI and SSDI, right, on their own, like, first go around, the approval rating is at, I think, 29.8%. Like, a person has a 29.8% chance of getting approved. Ouch. And when you look at those SSH reporting tables and you... Yeah, <laughs> and when you look at the reporting tables and you filter, if you filter for someone who is experiencing homelessness and has a severe mental health impairment, that number drops to about 17%. So, you know, for those of you listening, think of your, your the clients and the people that you serve. Think of the many challenges that they experience. Mm-hmm. So they have a 17% <laughs> chance of getting approved, you know, when they apply on their first go-around. And honestly, oftentimes, it's not that they aren't, quote-unquote, disabled, right? And using that mm-hmm. definition of disability that we talked about, right? Oftentimes, mm-hmm. it's not that they're disabled. It's that typically there are so many barriers that have gotten in the way of them being able to successfully put together a complete application mm-hmm. that truly demonstrates the need, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to truly demonstrate the severity of their impairment or being able to gather the necessary information that's on paper. And so SOAR is really kind of designed. I mean, I, I could go into the super long history of it, but I don't want to bore you. <laughs> but... Um, So SOAR, the SOAR training is really kind of designed to be able to address those gaps, right? Like it really, we have what's called the critical components and there are five and Mm -hmm. they basically are just designed to be able to have a SOAR trained caseworker. I'm going to use the term caseworker, but it doesn't have to be caseworkers. Anyone who's doing the work, it could be a peer, it could be a counselor, it could be a friend, it could be a neighbor, like whoever's doing the work, but I'll use caseworker interchangeably, right? But really like the whole, the critical components are basically where you, there is a caseworker that is assisting this person and they're kind of serving as that liaison between the person and that, and the have office in that process, right? So they are helping them fill out the forms. They are helping them to gather the appropriate medical evidence, right? They are helping to demonstrate the severity of the impact of the conditions that they experience, right? They are helping to ensure that that application is put together completely and that it's moving through along the appropriate way that it should be, Right. Because when we think about, um, you know, and I can even draw on some of my own lived experience uh, with this, but, you know, when we think about someone who's experiencing homelessness and may have, like, a severe mental health impairment or co occurring substance use disorder, I mean, think about all the different barriers. They, they may have, like, genuinely, genuinely, genuinely good intentions to try and go and do what they need to do and fill out that application. But thinking about the number of barriers that are that could get in the way, right, mm-hmm. and thinking about, okay the SSA office primarily communicates by mail. So if someone is experiencing homelessness or is transient or is hopping around, they're kind of like at a disadvantage right from the start, right? Because yeah. SSA, say, when they send you something, they're saying, send it back to us in 10 days or you're done, right? So at a disadvantage right there, right? Thinking about mm-hmm. if somebody maybe experiences severe cognitive impairments, right? They may not be able to recall like, where they've received treatment at. They may not necessarily be in a place or have that confidence or have that ability, that literal ability to be able to advocate for themselves or be able to mm-hmm. you know, uh, speak to what they feel, right? They may not necessarily be able to sit in an office for four hours and wait for you to call their name. Do you know what I mean? So it's like there are so many barriers that get in the way of that process. Um, And so SOAR is really designed to have that SOAR caseworker be able to assist them, help them put together that complete application, and help that process move along. And, you know, when we think about, you know, peer workers and Mm -hmm. just thinking about peer values and whatnot, Like, really, when we think about the SOAR process, there literally is not, there's not one aspect of the SOAR process that involving those with lived experience, there's not one part of that process that isn't enhanced or made so much better by the inclusion of peers, you know? And I think that peers have been such, you know, and SOAR is going to look, so SOAR is something that's going to look differently depending on what state you live in. But I think that SOARs Mm -hmm. have been such an underutilized and untapped resource to be able to help this process and just help make this process better i truly truly feel like and from what we've looked at and what we've seen and the conversations we had um involving peers um you know it's just such a win-win for everybody you know and i'm sorry i'm rambling I'm going to just keep on talking
1: okay you are not um, rambling this is all i for, okay. i know nobody can see me but i'm just nodding like yes yes <laughs> but you're right you're so right. I mean, we talk about it in the peer recovery space a lot that that experience is expertise. And I think people sometimes don't see that right away or don't like hear that or feel that. But but it's so true. And you're so right. It's so just that I mean, that's the human condition like one one, right? Like, hey, I've been where you've been. Right. I'm going to hold your hand through this. That's yeah. critical. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%, 100%. And, you know, I'm a person with lived experience with homelessness and with mental health. And, you know, when I first experienced homelessness, how old was I? Maybe like my early 20s. I guess you could semi consider me a professional. I was in my first job in this field, you know, my that I still love that I'm still at shout out. But you know, (laughs) you know, working at a mental health recovery, (laughs) right? working at a, peer mental health recovery center, you know, making my little $25,000 a year. And, you know, I was housed and we unfortunately had a house fire. It was a house fire um, that burned up the majority of our kitchen, parts of our living room, burned it up enough to where the fire department came to our door, put a padlock on it and locked it and said, I'm sorry, like, it's, it's not safe. Like, you're just, you're not able to go in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like that. You know, and the recovery center that I worked at, we served a significant number of customers, consumers that mm-hmm. were experiencing homelessness or had experienced homelessness. So I wasn't necessarily like new to like this this world of homelessness. But you know, when I tell you, even though I was a person that, of course, had empathy and care and compassion for those individuals, of course I did. I wouldn't have been working there if I didn't. When I tell you that, going through that experience myself. Opened me up to just this whole new level and world of of true like empathy and and true like care and compassion. Like there's nothing like just going through something yourself to truly, truly be able to experience that. And you know, and even when that first happened, like I said, like yes, I was working in that field, so I was familiar with. Okay, maybe this resource can help. Maybe this resource can help. Maybe this resource can help. But you know, when I went down to our local DSS to apply for, you know, public benefits. And when I got denied, because I made literally maybe like, an extra hundred or so over the limit, you know, I found myself at a loss. And what really, really, truly helped me in that moment was, you know, when I would go to work, and we would be having our groups, and we would have our consumers there, those that were going through it, those that had gone through it, and them kind of saying, like, yeah, when that happened to me, you know, this helped me, like, Going to this place helped me. Or, hey, well, this place is open super, super late. So I know you get off work at 8. You know, you have time to go thereafter. And so really kind of so much of like working in a peer-based organization mm-hmm. is, is mutual. And I've always loved and appreciated that. And I had just never felt it more in that moment. And what's really beautiful and I think what really represents, you know, our world, the peer world, is that uh, it wasn't even something that I had necessarily asked yeah. for. I wasn't directly approaching and asking just because, you know, a matter of being professional and boundaries. And I know the peer world's a little bit different, you know, we're in terms of like being mm-hmm. able to share. But it wasn't something that I was directly going to, to them and asking about. That would be a little inappropriate. But just that they knew that that was something that I needed. And they would just kind of openly say it or, or share it. And I thought that that was just really beautiful.
1: Just to emphasize that power of organic connection. It, You're right. It is something extra special magical you know whatever you want to call it but yeah you're right yeah and you know the
2: pure voice or anyone with expertise that voice to me is always going to be one of the most powerful voices in any room where people have influence to do good you know just thinking about my experiences at that recovery center and after I had you know secured another home um, and, you know, was working on my recovery, you know, but from, both from that experience of being homelessness and how it financially broke me, uh, but also, you know, with my mental health and recovering from that. And, you know, I remember being in rooms and again, like, you know, we served a significant number of clients that had experienced homelessness, but, you know, not everybody, even though 60% of our staff are peers, that doesn't mean necessarily all of them experienced homelessness, right? Because when we talk about lived experience, that can mean so many different things. Um, and I remember being in rooms where we're having discussions about policies and protocols and things of our agency. There was one that stuck out to me. There was one of, you know, sometimes our our consumers, you know, when you're experiencing homelessness, you you have all of your stuff and you put it in like bags, right? And I know even when I was experiencing homelessness, you know, I had the little bit of things that I was able to go in and take that fire department gave me like, gave us like 30 minutes to go in and grab whatever we could and like take it out. So I had everything in like one big trash bag and, you know, in my car and I would drive around and where I was staying, that's where I would change all that kind of good stuff. Right. And so I understand that sometimes when someone's experiencing homelessness, they have all of their things just in like one or two bags. And, you know, our customers, our consumers sometimes had a habit of like leaving the bags in the building and like leaving at the end of the day, but they would still be there. And there were genuine concerns about like safety and hygiene, because we have to look out for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And this conversation was happening of like, well, if they get left at the end of the day, we need to just throw them out. Like, you know, we give people fair enough warnings, we have conversations about it, we're very open about that. So if someone makes that decision to leave it, we should throw it out. And I knew, again, like from my lived experience of like, oh, man, I know what that's like to have all of your stuff, like the little bit of belongings that you have in one bag and have to carry it around with you. The only difference is I was privileged enough to have a car. If I didn't have a car, like I would be lugging that around too. And so because of that lived, right, you know, and so because of that lived experience, I was able to add my voice to that conversation to say, can we consider something else like that meets both needs? Can we consider that, hey, can we consider maybe extending that time that, that deadline that they have by like an hour or two. Can we consider maybe if we have to take out of the building, is there a designated area that we can move it to outside where it's outside, but that it's not in the big trash dumpster where nobody would be able to get it? And, you know, they were like, you know what? Yeah, I think that that's fair. There's a designated area that we can move it to outside by the door where somebody could still come back and get it. It's still out of the building. It's still meeting that safety and hygiene need, but that it's not in the garbage where that it would be lost for that person forever. And so, you know, that's just one of many examples that one sticks out to me the most though, because that was very, very near and dear to me in that moment.
1: Yeah. And I just, that speaks to why we need in any industry or any work group, whatever it looks like, a diverse group of people to be able to have that perspective. Because I'm, without your voice in that moment, I'm, the people making that decision, they I'm sure had the privilege of having their things in, a, in their own home, whatever that looked like for them. And so yeah, they didn't even have the experience to consider an alternative or what that experience might be for the people leaving their bags. Yeah,
2: 100%. 100% absolutely, Shannon. And you know, I mentioned earlier that I truly, truly feel like there is not one aspect of the SOAR process or the benefits acquisition process in general that those with lived expertise do not make better they enhance literally every part of it and i think like all the way from the level i think like from an individual level like the person that's applying the consumer but to the worker that itself the worker themselves right and i think that you know and i don't know how much the listeners know about the disability process like applying but pretty much again like i said before right you pretty much in order to to meet that show that you meet that definition for disability, you have to show that your symptoms have severely impacted your ability to function, right? And I think this is important, right? Because we're peers, we can understand mm-hmm. this, right? Just because someone has a diagnosis, that by itself doesn't mean that they're disabled. That by itself doesn't mean they can't work, right? Like You know, I can be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. You can be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Our experiences of that can be vastly different. So a diagnosis by itself does not get someone approved, right? It's Mm -hmm. about how severely has that impacted your ability to function, right? right? And so the disability process, though, because it focuses Mm -hmm. on that, like, severity, oftentimes the process can be very deficits-focused, very negative-focused. It's focused a lot on, like, what's going wrong with the Mm -hmm. person or what the person looks like on their worst day. It can be a very, very kind of, like... I don't want to say degrading, but like devaluing, devalue. It, it can really feel like a devaluing process sometimes for a lot of people, I can imagine. And I think so from the most basic levels of like, hey, this person's going through this process of applying for disability benefits because it is necessary, both like financially, but also for their other recovery goals in general. But hey, if, if your organization does this work and you have peer workers, Thinking about it, though, the most basic level of having your peer workers be able to work with that consumer during that process to be able to say, hey, I know how that feels. I went through that. Let me help you through that, though, because obtaining these benefits, let me show you how this has helped my life. And I I hope to have this same thing for you. You know, having somebody to be able to, to... Be reassuring, maybe be able to break down what some of those questions mean, maybe be able to understand like, well, you know, this is why this is happening or this is why they're asking that, you know, from its most basic level, like using that, that, that shared that relationship, right, that unique relationship to be able to help that person through it at its most basic level. And even aside from that, there are a number of other benefits, right? Because, Really, um, what we found too is that, like, for those organizations where peers are involved in that sort mm-hmm. of process, right? Oftentimes the information that they obtain is much more accurate, right? Because, and I could tell you this from working at the recovery center, when I would be talking to some of the our consumers, they would have no problem being honest with me saying, listen, I used last week, you mm-hmm. know, and this happened. They would have no problem telling me that because they know, you know, from our shared uh, experiences, mm-hmm. from the, the relationship and the trust that we built, that, hey, I am there to support you through whatever you need at that moment. Now they have no problem telling me that, but they have no problem going to their counselor. And of course, you know, not exactly being truthful and saying that they used, do you know what I mean? So like they are much more likely to be honest with me because of the uniqueness of that relationship and the uniqueness of my role. And what I'm there to help that person with. Right. So thinking about disability, when a, you know, whoever's doing the work, will say, let's say a sore case Mm -hmm. where who's not necessarily peer, right. When they're asking these questions about, Do you sometimes see things that people don't see? You know, things like that. Having a peer assist in that process or maybe having a peer have the conversation or ask the questions, that consumer is most probably statistically more likely to be more honest, Mm -hmm. more upfront, more descriptive about how they feel, which are all necessary things to demonstrate that severity for benefits for the application, you know? So really kind of helping to draw out more accurate information and Mm -hmm. make those applications better. It's just such a win-win for the consumer. I also think too, Another thing that I often like to talk about and mention is that I really think having peer workers, you know, engage with advanced training such as the SOAR training is a win-win for them too. And this is like a really important piece that I often like to talk about, right? Because so oftentimes I feel like inherent in the literature or in the field when we talk about like the benefits of peer services, so much of it is talking about the benefits from a systems level, right? And talking about the benefits of how peer workers bring about all these positive outcomes, for such a cheap <laughs> price, right? I mean, sorry, I know it's not worded exactly like that. Yeah. But so much so much of that. Yeah, that, you're, not you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. <laughs> that's true, and that's great. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, that's true, and that's great. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not a benefit. That's a really, really good thing. Um, but, you know, in this conversation about SOAR, and, 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 you know, uh, when I was brought on to kind of like help, I don't want to say lead, but like, kind of like help to lead our work, you know, with this specific area. Really, like a big part of the conversation that I want to make sure that I am always, always talking about, or I always have in the back of my mind is like, how does this benefit the consumer? But how does this also benefit the peer worker? How are we helping and working and moving Mm. in ways that help to develop and expand our peer workforce? How are we helping them, you know, to make themselves, you know, for lack of a better word, like, you know, how do we help to make sure that we are helping them to grow and develop? professionally and better themselves professionally. Because like I said, I think that peer workers and those with lived experience should be in any room where decisions are being made. That is my personal belief. And I think that by having peers engage in advanced trainings like SOAR trainings, right, it helps them to develop more skills, helps to make them a more marketable employee, helps to give them more experience, so I just think that like, there's such this mutual benefit, like there's a benefit to the consumer, there's a benefit to the worker. And then of course, there's like the overall systems benefit or the benefit to the agency, but they are my least concern. I don't know if you want to cut that part out, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. i was just kidding. That was a joke. You don't, I to. don't, I don't want to, but... <laughs> but they are. No, no, don't cut it out. Don't cut it out. They're my least concern. Um... <laughs> but, but, but yeah, so, you know, absolutely. Sorry. I know that was a
1: lot. No, I appreciate it. And I just I'm sitting here thinking like, man, I think Sumitra needs to maybe run for president or something <laughs> <laughs> or at least or write a book. <laughs> we need every we need the wor- we need more of you in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, we're kind of rounding out the top of the hour. So if there's anything else you want to plug, maybe let people know how they could access the training or the resources if they're looking for it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, SOAR training is done via a, an online course. It is free. It is open. It's accessible to the public. If by chance there are any peer workers out there that are social licensed social workers as well, you can get 20 free CEUs from NASW from completing the course. We're also working with a couple of states to get the course approved for continuing education credits for their state peer certifications. So you can just go to www.sorworks.samsha.gov I mean, you can enroll in the course. Now, this is like a comprehensive course. It's not your standard online training that you can just throw on while you're actually doing something else, doing laundry. Not that I'm guilty of doing that, of yeah. any other trainings, right? But it's not... I feel seen. Right, right. right. You know, it's uh, it's a comprehensive course. It's meant to like walk you through as if you were doing an actual application. So you're given a practice case person, you're actually filling out the forms, you're submitting it, it's coming to the TA Center, and we're giving you feedback and either passing you or asking you to revise it. So we have currently have 126 plus peers across the country that are sort of trained in that are actively doing applications, and we are very, very grateful for the work that they do. I would also encourage uh, anyone who's listening to go to our website, soarworks.samsha.gov. Look in our peer resource section. We've got a number of different issue briefs that just talk about innovative ways that peers have been integrated into SOAR initiatives in different states and communities across the country. We've got a recent webinar from this year. Um, and yeah, so just check out any of the the resources.
1: Sumitra, thank you so much for Oh, man, what a great way to start my day. It was, it's been a joy chatting with you. Same,
2: likewise. Thank you so much, Shannon. Thanks for all that you do and for giving this space. Uh, much appreciated.
0: Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website peerrecoverynow.org That's peerrecoverynow.org or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services. Nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.